0: Welcome into Inside the Archives, XRT's latest podcast. I'm Marty Rosenbaum, XRT's digital content producer and all things social media. Today, I'm really excited because we are joined by XRT morning show host, Lynn Bramer. We're going to talk songwriting, something you know a little bit about, I think.
1: Well, I only know songwriting from listening to my favorite songwriters, and I've always described myself as the patron saint of the doomed singer-songwriter because it's the guys who turn phrases and really are craftsmen in the world of songwriting that I feel that get overlooked the most.
0: Yeah, and I think this is great time for recording this, too, because last Friday you just saw one of the greatest songwriters of all time at the Chicago Theater,
1: John Prine. You know, I once described John Prine as a sort of songwriter who turns more great phrases in four minutes than an entire day of MTV in the early 80s. Uh, here's a guy who's written... You know, hundreds of songs. And when you sit in a concert of his and listen to him unspool stories, uh, go back into the archives of what he's written, you're just continually blown away. You know, he's singing, I used to live in Chicago where the cold wind blows. I delivered more junk mail than the junkyard would hold. I wasn't hurting nobody. I wasn't hurting no one. John Brine of Dear Abbey and uh, Sam Stone and uh, Hello in There, songs that will wrench tears from the hardest person. Uh, he's really the songwriter's songwriter. Of course, I always start sort of in my mind uh, with contemporary rock and roll songwriting with Bob Dylan, who himself is influenced heavily by Woody Guthrie, but I think he took songwriting to another level. And on, on many instances, uh, Bob Dylan wrote songs in a variety of ways, uh, you know, I think of, of some of his songs as being really impressionistic, like uh, John Ashbery poem, where you're not quite sure what he's getting at, but you just love the rumble of the words. Uh, there's a song on Bringing It All Back Home called Gates of Eden, and it starts out, "Of war and peace, the truth just drifts, it's curfew gull, it glides." Now, if you brought an English professor in here and said what the heck is he talking about? The professor would probably go, I'm not quite sure, but he's creating an impression with the way he's putting words together. On the other hand, he's also the master of, of the song uh, that has a message, a song that has a certain power. How many roads does a man walk down before you can call him a man in a song like Blown in the Wind? So I, I think for the uh, the songwriter lover, it, it really starts with the catalog of Bob Dylan and the amazing music and song lyrics that he's written.
0: Yeah, and it, it really does tell a great story, even if you don't understand what the hell he's talking about. Right. You you get that picture painted for you, as you said. So let's let's take a step back before we get into the great songwriters, and I want to ask you, how do you define a songwriter?
1: Well, you know, in the broadest sense, uh, I, I don't think I can get... Uh, too elitist about it. I think anybody who puts words together and puts the music behind it, whether it's Katy Perry or uh, Jason Isbell, uh, you know, they're writing songs. They're songwriters. Of course, there are different uh, different aspects of songwriting, and you know, in my world, there are the great songwriters and then the the people that just sound like they're going through the motions.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think the traditional sense, when you think of a songwriter, at least when I think of a songwriter, it's someone sitting down with an acoustic guitar, <laughs> cup of coffee, <laughs> maybe a beer, depending probably, on the time probably, of day.
1: Probably a cigarette, you know, yeah. if, if you're an old school songwriter. Well, you know, I think that's the uh, romanticized version, and and actually, if I'm being truthful, that's sort of the image I have in my mind when I, when I think of somebody like John Hyatt sitting mm-hmm. down t- to write a song. You know, probably at the kitchen table, probably late at night, definitely with a cup of coffee uh but i i know from you know interviewing artists that songs come to be in in the strangest places mm-hmm. and and you know on tour tour buses hotel rooms and sometimes the best known songs in our experience were songs that the songwriter themselves really had no awareness of in terms of It's impact or it's, you know, there are all these stories about songwriters who are in a recording session with these iconic bands and, you know, they're sort of finished up with everything they thought they had to record and somebody, the man goes, well, do we have, is there anything else? Do we have anything else? And there's the story of Robbie Robertson digging in the back uh, of his jeans and pulling out, you know, yeah, I I got uh, one last thing. uh, we should try this, and they go through it, and it turns out to be uh, the song "The Wait, which is wow. one of the most famous. You know, pulled into Nazareth, was mm-hmm. feeling about half as dead. That was a throwaway. That was something that almost didn't come to be. It was something that was scribbled down, stuffed in his back pocket, and he he pulled it out, and it became one of the most famous songs, not only in the band catalog but in, in the rock and roll catalog
0: yeah well and you've, you've spoken to many artists who have shared stories like that where the listener thinks that they sat down and thought of this powerful piece i'm going to change the world with this song when sometimes it's just instances like robbie robertson pulling it out of his back pocket
1: right uh the same the same sort of thing happened with uh pete townsend and magic bus mm-hmm. uh, it was another throwaway it was i'm not sure we should record this um you know, th- this is kind of a piece of fluff. and uh, You know, nobody's going to get into it. And it turned out to be uh, traditionally one of their most requested songs in concert. Why do you think that happens? Uh, you know, I, I think it's very difficult for songwriters to—I think it's difficult for any artist to assess their own work. I think that's why so many songwriters, if they don't have collaborators, they have people they can point to that— you know, look over their shoulder, whether it's a producer or an A&R guy or a personal friend or a girlfriend or a wife or a boyfriend uh, who can say, no, 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 don't throw this out. This is worthwhile. Think about the uh, the author Franz Kafka. His, his death wish was, you know what, burn everything, everything I've written, get rid of it, and had somebody follow through on that and said, to themselves. No, that would be a bad idea. We wouldn't have The Trial or The Castle or these amazing works in, uh, in uh, Western literature. Songwriting
0: and lyrics go hand in hand in terms of determining the depth of the song, attaching some sort of meaning to it. But some of the most beautiful music I've heard has no lyrics. One of my favorite examples is Funkadelic's Maggot Brain. (laughs) The story going, George Clinton walks into the studio and tells Eddie Hazel, who may or may not have been under the influence of psychedelic drugs, I want you to play guitar like I just told you your mother died. And delivers a beautiful 10 minute guitar solo over a very simple riff that one of their session players is playing in the background. And it just evokes so much emotion. I mean, Literally sounds like he's playing as if someone told him his mother died. Do you think that songwriters need lyrics to make great songs like that? And what instances do we have where that work speaks for itself without needing
1: lyrics? Well, when I think about the world uh, of rock and roll instrumentals, there are deeply affecting songs. I think of songs like uh, the Allman Brothers' Jessica, which is uh, a very evocative song, it's seven minutes, it's an instrumental. It has, you know, amazing guitar playing. And uh, there's a song that really didn't need any lyrics. Now, I know the the song that I want played at my funeral. make a note of this, everybody, because who knows how long I have. Uh, There's an instrumental uh, guitar piece by the primitive folk guitar hero John Fahey called Sunflower River Blues. And it's really just this beautiful slow, meandering, uh, song that has no lyrics, but it is the most expressive song I've ever heard. And have you found artists when you've
0: spoken to them or you go, you go and see a show, can you tell by their demeanor that they put a lot more thought into this? They put a lot more emotion into this song than maybe a tune like the Wait, where it does have those deep evocative lyrics, but it wasn't really their intention to create that.
1: You know, I think, I think one of the gifts of the creative process is you really know, don't know where it's going to come from. I think there are songs that artists have labored over and maybe, you know, put in a drawer somewhere for a few years and come back to, and I, I know there are examples of songs like that. And just as easily, you know, sometimes you just sit down and it flows and it's easy and it's there, and you think to yourself, why am I killing myself over the song I have in my bureau when this, the best thing I've ever written, happened in about a half an hour? And I I think any of us can be seized by that moment where something or someone inspires us and the, the lyrics or the music just flow out of us. Yeah, well, and if it was that
0: easy, we'd have a formula for creating a great moving
1: piece. That's right. You know, I think there are... Uh, computer programs that people are working on, where they can, uh, where a computer can write poetry or write the lyrics to a song, just with certain inputs, it's all kind of really? frightening to me. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Yeah. That's why not? <laughs> <laughs> put in. Put in the algorithms. Uh, tear jerker and. Um, <laughs>
0: Tugging at your soul, uh, pretty, other stuff like that. Pretty girl with brown hair. Yeah. You know,
1: fill in the fill in the blanks.
0: Just another step into our dystopian future. Yes. <laughs> well, in, another thing I like, A, about your show is you use your motto, It's Great to Be Alive, from Frank Zappa, who's one of my favorite musicians and one of my all-time favorite lyricists as well because he blends humor and just weird stories, but it fits under that songwriter mantra that we discussed earlier where you're telling a story, you're painting a picture, even if it doesn't make any sense. Why do you think we don't associate people like Frank Zappa or even maybe Prince who has some goofy sexual lyrics in some songs uh, under that same canon of like a John Hyatt or a Joni Mitchell?
1: Well, yeah, I, I think it goes back to the, the stereotypical, stereotypical image of a singer-songwriter sitting on a stool in the kitchen a strumming a guitar, when you know I think of Prince as one of the great songwriters of all time, mm-hmm. and uh, who did you mention just before Frank Prince? Zappa? Frank Zappa, uh, of as you know, I'm a huge Frank Zappa fan, and you know he can tell a story about you know, I mean, I mean the ultimate story about starting a band in high school, you know, the garage band and sneaking of beer into the garage, and it can be a simple narrative like uh, Joe's Garage, which yeah. is the song I'm thinking of, or you get this excoriating assessment of contemporary society in a song like I'm the Slime, mm-hmm. I'm the Slime oozing out of your TV set, which was written, you know, came out in 1974 and could not possibly be any more relevant if it were released today. Yeah, I mean, it's
0: timely no matter when you listen to it. Now it may not be the television that he's talking about polluting our minds. You know, it could be another device, but that overall theme sticks with it. And going back to Joe's Garage, I was gonna bring that up earlier because I think that's one of those songs that so many music fans can relate to. If you're a musician, just going over to your buddy's house, playing guitar, playing the same song over and over <laughs> again
1: on different instruments, Oh yeah. no, I, have your let parents telling you to turn it down? Let, let me tell you, when I was in Edgar's uh, basement with our uh, three-piece band, The Roundabouts, I mean, we would play Van Morrison's Gloria, although I think we probably knew it best from the Top 40 Shadows of Night version, a Chicago band that did a version of uh, Gloria which in many markets was more uh famous and better known than the Van Morrison and Them version we would play Gloria for a half an hour yeah. it, was, it was three chords and and you know when i heard Joe's garage i said oh my god this is exactly that experience of being with your friends and playing the same stupid song over and over again cuz let's face it you didn't know that many songs right
0: and especially when you're young presumably joe is during the song, that's all you do, and you have the parent come and tell you to turn it down, we don't wanna hear it, and you know, I think it just paints a great story of what being in a band or even following musicians are is all about.
1: Absolutely, and I think a lot of the the great uh, songs in in rock and roll are self-referential. I mean, in as much as, you know, it's rock and roll artists writing songs about being rock and roll artists or making rock and roll. I've described Tom Penny and the Heartbreakers Anything that's rock and roll from the first album. That's the perfect rock and roll song because, you know, it's two and a half minutes, so it's short like classic rock songs used to be. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, in the same Joe's Garage vein about a guy, you know, your mama don't like me because you run around with me. And talking about, uh, you, know, you don't like work, you don't like school. It's this whole you know, young rocker alienation song, and it's all packed into a a two-and-a-half-minute punch uh, where, uh, you know, the salient line is, anything that's rock and roll's fine.
0: Well, and this brings me to something you say on your show quite often, even though it may be a bit contradictory. You'll introduce a song saying, this is the greatest song ever written. But it's not just for for one song, so two-part question. Why do, why do you say that for multiple songs? <laughs> and All right. and, what, and what, there, what makes up the greatest song ever written?
1: There is a backstory to that. Uh, from 1984 to 1990, n- not everybody knows this, I worked behind the scenes as the music director, so determining you know what new songs wound up in our library, what old songs we wanted to concentrate on. Uh, at XRT. At XRT. Yeah. And I would have a music meeting with the program director, Norm Weiner, who was the program director at the time, and it seemed like every week, in order to uh, stir his interest, I would say, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. i got to play you something. This is the greatest song ever written. And after the 18th time, you know, it became kind of a running joke mm-hmm. that every week or every other week, I go, whoa, whoa, hold on. We haven't listened to, you know, we haven't listened to this song. This is the greatest song ever written. Now, for me to say that on the radio, there are probably a dozen or two dozen songs that I could easily apply that to, but I think in everybody's life, they find a moment where there is a song where it's the greatest song ever written. Maybe it's an obscure Warren Zevon song like Desperado's Under the Eaves and you're feeling a little desperation, and you're feeling the internal rhyme, if California falls into the ocean like the mystics and statistics say it will, uh, that that, on that day, is the greatest song ever written. And some of them are obvious. You know, I always refer to the Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter as the greatest song ever written. And that has a lot to do with my personal affection for the Rolling Stones. It has a lot to do with the place that song takes in history, not only as uh, one of the key songs of 1969, but the title of the documentary about their tour, their 1969 tour uh, that gave us the album Get Your Yayas Out, which was recorded in Madison Square Garden, which also covers the period of time when Altamont became not only uh, the enduring tragedy of outdoor music festivals, uh, but also sort of signaled the end of the idealism of the 60s for me. And I think it did for a lot of people that, you know, you had Woodstock in 1969 and, oh, you had half a million people in a farm field and they were muddy and they were hungry. and uh, But everybody got through it, everybody... Allegedly had a good time. Although, if you talk to anybody who went to Woodstock, they go, "Oh my God, it, it was, it was horrible. <laughs> it was horrible. It rained. We got wet." Uh, but you know, there was that good feeling, and the, the way the press covered Woodstock. There was this great feeling, and then you get to Altamont and the Rolling Stones and the Jefferson Airplane, uh, and somebody gets stabbed, and and the uh, the Hell's Angels are hired as as bodyguards, and they start beating people up, and. And for those of us in the 60s who already had a cynical turn of mind, you go, you know, this whole peace and love thing, it's a nice thought, but it really feels like it's over now. And to me, Gimme Shelter brings that all into focus as a song and as a a touchstone in the history of rock and roll. And that's why that's the greatest song ever written. Well, couldn't have said it better.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But you're right. I mean, you do... You posted a playlist on our website, I don't know, probably a year, two years ago, of the songs that you define as the greatest songs ever written.
1: I wonder if I can Um, remember. There's uh, Van Morrison, Into the Mystic is one of them. I was born before the wind. Uh, I just think that's a phenomenally beautiful song. And Van Morrison in his best voice ever. Uh, and But there you know are some more obscure songs, like there's a band out of Texas that was formed with the remnants of Steve Ray Vaughan's band, a band called Storyville, and they do a song called Good Day for the Blues. And just the lyrics and the guitar playing and the whole package really stirs me up. How do listeners react
0: when you introduce a song as the greatest song ever written? Now, everyone knows Rolling Stone's Gimme Shelter, but if you talk about a Warren Zevon desperado, say someone my age, uh, or you know, or younger, someone in their teens, twenty years old, who isn't familiar with Warren Zevon, how do they receive well, music like that?
1: I would like to. I would like to think that they they sense that there's a joke involved, and uh, that their reaction is, "Oh, he's got to be kidding me." How is this the greatest song ever? written? how do you pick this song as the greatest song? But I would also hope that they would. Uh, That They would go, well, you know, if he says it's the greatest song ever written, I I should really listen to it. Mm -hmm. You know, I should check it out. And sometimes it's just an old-fashioned tease, you know, coming up in just a few minutes. I'm going to play the greatest song ever written. And people are going, what? (laughs) What do you mean you're going to play the greatest song ever written? But it's probably going to keep them around to see if they have a similar reaction to it. Mm -hmm. You know, they're John Hyatt songs that I feel are the greatest songs ever written. Steve Earle songs, uh, and here I am veering into the uh, traditional singer-songwriter uh, genre. Uh, but you know, sometimes it's sometimes it's a song that sums up your rock and roll life. Mm-hmm. Like there's a song by uh, the Tough Darts, a band that featured Robert Gordon. As lead vocalist for a while and they were among the punk bands that played CBGB's in in the late 70s and there was a double album that came out live at CBGB's and on that double set uh, tough darts do a song called all for the love of rock and roll I don't do it for the money I ain't seen none I don't do it for the women I just need one the reason I do it I've got to say it's all for the I messed up the last two lines, but it's all for the love of rock and roll. It's yeah. the the finishing finishing line. That's great. And uh, I believe it was for my 25th anniversary broadcast, live broadcast. We did that. That was the last song I played on that show. So there's a personal touch to a lot of these. Well, yeah, I, I think if if you're saying it's the greatest song ever written, it's redundant to say you know, I believe this to be the greatest song ever written. I, I think it was a high school English teacher that said, don't always use the first person singular, because if you're talking, you, you've, you've already tipped your hand. They already know it's you saying it. So constantly saying, you know, I be- what I believe, what I think is not necessary.
0: Yeah. It's almost like you're playing poker Yeah, with the listener. Now, A lot of that romanticism of a singer-songwriter sitting with an acoustic guitar and a candle, beverage of their choice, seems to have evolved from an old blues musician playing on their front porch out on the side of the street. Same exact thing, acoustic guitar, singing about the blues, yet when I googled singer-songwriter, there were no blues artists. I'll read you the top 10 results, or the first 10 results that came up when you google singer-songwriters. It's... Joni Mitchell, James Taylor, (laughs) Leonard Cohen, Jackson Brown, Nick Drake, Bruce Springsteen, Elliott Smith, Jeff Buckley, and Ryan Adams. All great musicians, but not not much diversity there at all. Why do you think the blues hasn't fallen into that same category or that same romantic vision that these singer-songwriters I just mentioned are? Because it is a very important piece of the American music canon.
1: I th- I think it's because uh the phrase singer-songwriter has come to mean over the years something having to do with you know the 60s and 70s uh acoustic guitar playing um uh poets you mm-hmm. know the Leonard Cohen's the Joni Mitchell's of the world when none of that music really is possible without the blues of the Mississippi Delta and the guys that came up from there and and settled in chicago but yeah the the very foundation of all rock and roll songwriting starts with pink anderson and floyd council who pink floyd took their name from mm-hmm. it comes from uh you know mississippi john hurt comes from uh uh the very first guys to pick an acoustic guitar in that syncopated way that kind of seduces us all Uh, and then telling a story behind it yeah I mean I I had a I had a friend that worked on the air with me when I I was very young who would occasionally turn to me and go you know he'd be playing some song and and you could just tell that there was a blues influence in the song he just turned to me and go he can never forget the blues
0: (laughs) well there are a lot of overlapping characteristics in the lyrical content of blues musicians and the artists I just mentioned it could be pain, suffering, protest, in some senses. hmm I, I had to do some research or listening on my own to make that connection. It's not as blatantly obvious if you're just reading major publications or you're listening to these musicians for the first time. What's a good gateway for people that are interested in these artists, the Joni Mitchells, the James Taylor, to really make that connection to these blues musicians who had such a big influence on in their in other musicians' lives?
1: Well, I, I think you have to go back to, uh, you know, there are anthologies of the acoustic blues of the, the 30s, maybe even the late 20s and uh, uh, early 40s, uh, where you can sit down and, and you know, Robert Johnson and talking about going down to the crossroads and, and meeting with the devil so that uh, he can play guitar better than anybody else, selling your soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, You know, start with Robert Johnson. There's a great box set of Robert Johnson. Uh, There's your gateway to James Taylor and um, Fire and Rain and Joni Mitchell, Rainy Night House, and um, uh, songs like that.
0: Yeah, well, there's a great article I found on NPR when I Googled What is American Music, and it was an interview from 2011 with a Baltimore symphony conductor by the name of Marin Alsop, and he had a great quote about it. I really feel that what makes America American is inherently related to essence and ideal. America for me is still an ideal, a country of possibility, immediacy, access, inclusion and straightforwardness. It is a place where people can transcend class and challenge to achieve greatness. That right there is found in all types of music and in songwriting, no matter what type of genre you have, I think there's that aspect to it. What are 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 your thoughts on that quote? First of all, and then, how do you think that shows itself in some of the music that XRT plays?
1: So you save the easy questions for uh, later in the in the discussion. Exactly. Uh, how would I define American music? Well, as as you were talking about, uh, you know, possibility and inclusion, I was thinking about how the music that's described as Americana is really my favorite style of music. Uh, I think it has to do with the roots and beginnings of American music, and that would be found in bluegrass and country and the blues we were talking about. I, I think you find that as a foundation to, you know, Woody Guthrie influencing Woody Guthrie or the Leuven brothers influ- influencing Graham Parsons and Emmylou and Harris. Um, to me, American music uh, comes both out of uh, the hills of North Carolina in a very rural agrarian society just as much as it comes out of uh you know maxwell street and and the streets of the big city and chicago and new york um you know it's it's music that uh, at its very soul is about the american experience in some way you know uh such a big country with so many different sounds and so many different voices that uh, you, you, have, you have a really broad canvas with which to paint your idea of American music. Well, and it, as you mentioned, it has that evolution of what
0: America has become today from where it was, that you know, rural agrarian society very spread out, and you can hear it in music today. It's, as it's evolved, we're becoming tighter, closer together, more snugged up against people. And that gets reflected in song
1: uh yeah i think you're absolutely right about that um i'm just trying to think of some of my favorite singer songwriters talking about some of the things that uh, the quotation referred to you know about a cl- inclusion and possibility steve Earle on his first album uh, singing i was born in the land of plenty now there ain't enough james mcmurtry Thank goodness is uh, coming here for the American Music Festival at Fitzgerald's, speaking of American music, uh, writing, will I work for food, will I die for oil, will kill for power, and to us the spoils, the billionaires get to pay less tax, the working poor get to fall through the cracks. Mm. Uh, You know, there are all these songwriters in America that are describing the American experience from the standpoint of the people in the streets, the people that are struggling to get by, uh, I think that has a lot to do with the best in American music.
0: Yeah. And that gets summed up greatly by Patti Smith's People Have the Power.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, Patti Smith, uh, that's such an inspirational song that uh, whenever, you know, I'm sitting there in the studio and I'm feeling like I need some affirmation, I, I need a song, and, and maybe everybody listening needs a song to remind them that that uh, the people that really should be in control of the country are the people who go to the voting polls mm-hmm. and vote, and people have the power
0: now, one of my so I'm twenty nine going on thirty. I feel old but not old in retrospect. You, know, I <laughs> you can't tell
1: a guy like me that you, you you're twenty nine You can't tell a person like me that you're twenty nine and you're feeling old. that uh, that's no, not fair. that that ain't right.
0: I apologize. This is, oh, this boy, is I'm almost 30. <laughs> oh, woe is me. It's the typical uh, millennial complaining you know, about when everything. I, when
1: I was your age, I first came to XRT. Really? Yeah. I was 30 years old. It was a turning point in my life. Yeah. And where'd you come from? I, I uh, was uh, working as a disc jockey in Albany, New York, mm-hmm. uh, not far from Woodstock. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I used to go down to Woodstock a lot because it was kind of... Well, you had all these recording studios down there. It's where the band had uh recorded their first stuff. So, it was an interesting part of the country musically uh even back then. But, how did that how, how does that help
0: shape your musical preferences and just the overall way you carry yourself on air?
1: Uh, you know what? I I got into radio not so much to be a radio person, but because I had this sense I wanted to share music with people. Mhm. I think that has a lot to do with um, a certain level of humility that I feel each and every day turning on the microphone. Uh, You know, I grew up in New York City, and my earliest musical influences were from my dad, who used to make me listen to Beethoven records when I was five years old. So, of course, I became a rock and roll DJ. (laughs) But he also loved uh, kind of the early folk movement, like the, the folk music of the 50s. So, through him, I listened to um, Cisco Houston and Odetta and especially Woody Guthrie. My father loved Woody Guthrie. In fact, you know, I would say most of the songs I can play on guitar, and there are not a lot of them, are Woody Guthrie songs. Mm. Whether it's, uh, I've been doing some hard traveling, I thought, you know, to uh, talking guitar blues and the whole talking guitar. Uh, genre it was picked up by bob dylan on his first album and talk in new york uh loud wainwright the third did a, a talking song so uh, i had this whole uh, background as a kid strumming guitar and listening to records of the old folk masters then i moved to chicago found out that uh so much of it started right here in chicago yeah Well, and even though it may have a different sound, you're not
0: sitting down with an acoustic guitar. It all it all carries that same message of telling an experience, painting some picture. It's just yeah, telling telling a
1: story. It's it's all about uh, you know. It's either something that's confessional about your life, but uh, we also have to remember that songwriters love to put themselves in somebody else's shoes, Mm -hmm. and uh, the biggest mistake you can make as a listener or as an interviewer is to assume that this song is about what happened to this singer songwriter right because a lot of times has nothing to do with them at all
0: yeah well and one of my favorite musicians at the moment who does a great job of that is Jason Isbell and you listen to the content of his lyrics and he places you right there alongside of him whether or not he is the one experiencing what he's talking about, or he's talking about it from a third-hand perspective, or he's just making up an entire story. Um,
1: he's such a great job at painting those pictures. I, I thought that Jason Isbell's album last year was the best album of the year. And, uh, you know, he, he writes in uh, Hope the High Road. I've heard enough about the white man's blues. I've sang enough about myself. So if you're looking for some bad news, you can find it somewhere else. Last year was a son of a bitch for nearly everyone we know. But I ain't fighting with you down in the ditch. I'll meet you up here on the road. It's just great lines and, and a great point of view. And really saying, I'm not going to pull any punches, you know. Yeah. Tell you what, you stick to the music. I'll stick to the songwriting. Yeah. <laughs> well, the the point I'm getting at with that
0: is he's – seen an explosion in popularity playing a 93xrt show at the auditorium theater coming up this September right. did a sold out three night run at the Chicago theater and he's reached that point where you know casual fans know who he is just through the sheer brilliance of his work um the de- dedication that he's had to his craft but you go to a show and he talks about his love for someone like John Prine and I think he was featured on John Prine's latest record as mm-hmm. a uh, you know recording as a artist man, yeah, yeah. How, the songwriter songwriter is how you referred to John Prine earlier. Right. Someone that's going to see Jason Isbell at the auditorium theater, who do you connect him with to extend that lineage? Wow.
1: Um I don't know. I you know, I think he, I do him a disservice if I say, Oh, he's following the footsteps of John Prine, or, you know, I hear a little Steve Earle in in what he does. I think he's unique enough, an artist, that he deserves to uh, to, to live, survive, and and succeed on his own merits. Uh, I, when I listen to Jason Isbell, I, you know, sometimes I listen to what I was like, oh, this is kind of like, or oh, he, he sounds so much like, um, but when I li- listen to Jason Isbell songs, I don't go, oh, this reminds me of this artist or mm-hmm. this song. Um, I, I'm completely consumed by whatever it is he's playing and singing. He's also one of those rare onstage storytellers where you can go to the show as much for what he says between the songs as for the songs he plays because the stories he has and the people he's met, uh, it, he, he just spins an amazing yarn when he's on stage between songs.
0: Yeah, and have you spoken to him off stage?
1: I I have, but you know, people have this this idea that disc jockeys just go backstage and hang out with artists for hours. And that has happened, but 95% of the time the artist is exhausted. They have to be in Cincinnati the next morning. They have to get on the tour bus, so interactions are you know, five, ten minutes. And when I'm talking to Jason Isbell, he is one of those guys that goes out of his way to be accommodating and polite. Yeah. Um, but I haven't said, Jason, have a seat. I, I want to really get inside <laughs> your head. I, I-, I want to find out what's ticking in there with the way you write songs.
0: Well, you just got to bring him to a place like Three Forks where you can woo him with some food. <laughs> 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 the artists that you've spoken to, you know, Jason Isbell's of the world, Uh, or anyone else that we bring through here, do you find their personas once they're off the microphone that they have that depth to them and just the way they carry about themselves, and does that influence their creative process, or is it business, personal life, has that separation?
1: Pete Townsend, when I've interviewed him, and I've had the chance to talk to him several times, he is very confessional, He's very upfront about who he is and his emotional state and where he was when he wrote a song and what it's like to be on stage playing a song that he's been playing for 50 years. It really depends on the artist. What I have discovered is the more famous, the bigger the artist, whether you know, I've, ta- I've talked to Paul Simon and to David Bowie and to Robert Plant and to Pete Townsend, and what they all have in common is that they no longer have this adversarial attitude towards um, media or being interviewed that they are more than willing to share what's on their mind. Mm-hmm. And it's really refreshing what you have to watch out for. And I lived through this in the late 70s with all the British punk bands coming through America uh, and thinking they were going to be you know, the next Patty Smith or the, or the next Ramones and then, you know, came and disappeared, was their attitude was, I don't know why I'm here, I don't need you, I'm not interested in in talking to you. Uh, and you just see the transformation over the years. Uh, the artists that really have achieved some greatness have put all that attitude kind of behind them. And they will tell you what it feels like to be on stage in front of 100,000 people. Why do you think
0: that's evolved? Because the classic image you have is of the rock star that doesn't care, that doesn't want to be there. But Well,
1: I'll, I'll tell you two examples. Uh, interviewing Mick Jagger, I was scared to death because the Rolling Stones, one of my all-time favorite bands. And I had a one-on-one interview with him when he released a solo album, and I must have prepared you know, 80 questions. But the thing was that somebody like Mick Jagger understands that an interview – is at the same time, not only you know, a revelation of where they are, what they're doing, but it's also uh, a moment of public relations mm-hmm. where that they're not uh, only talking to you, but they're seducing their audience. And I think over the long haul, artists realize the best way to do that is to be charming. Yeah. Why not be kind? Why not talk to this DJ I have never heard of? Uh, why not answer the question without all the other baggage? You know, all that stuff falls away. These are already people whose legacies are secure. Uh, They don't have the insecurities that would let them be less than talkative or, you know, put you off. I mean, I've seen and witnessed interviews where artists have such bad attitudes that, They forget, you know, they lean back from the mic and you ask them a question. They're way back here. And you just want to say, you sing into a microphone every night. You know know what they're for. Will you get a little closer to the microphone, please? Uh, But like I say, it seems like the bigger they are, the better they are. Uh, And maybe that's why uh, they're bigger. Yeah,
0: well, and it seems to be sustainable because you could get that one soundbite that says, oh, my gosh, Mick Jagger said this, he was such an asshole to this guy, but that's very temporary and the other stuff seems to live on forever.
1: Yeah, no, I uh I've had I've had uh you know really nerve-wracking experiences talking to some of the the greatest names in rock history and you know talking about their songwriting and I have to tell you you know this isn't this isn't going to play on TMZ, but they've been great. Mm-hmm. They've been nice. They've been interesting. David Bowie, uh, the only problem with talking to David Bowie is he has such a wealth of knowledge on everything. You have to be careful what direction you go in because he will leave you in the dust. (laughs) I started an interview with David Bowie talking about um, uh, philosophers of the early 20th century, and I quickly realized that I had gone in way over my (laughs) head. That was my fear speaking to you today, Lynn. Oh, that you were gonna, <laughs> I was gonna be way over your head. I think you've known mm. me long enough to know there's not much there there. Yeah. Well, before we wrap things up,
0: I want to thank you again for joining me today.
1: Marty, and as you know, I will do whatever you want. Wonderful.
0: I'll take you up on that on other offers when we aren't recording, which Marty, people aren't gonna be privy to. Let
1: me tell you something. Marty Rosenbaum is the absolute best. You know you only know him through, you know, bylines on the website and and this podcast. But he is the absolute best. You have warmed my heart today. Don't edit this part out.
0: <laughs> so, before we wrap things up, I want to talk about
1: songwriters of
0: today, people that
1: are current. Who's blown you away? Well, I I've already sung the praises of Jason Isbell uh, on a more obscure level. A guy named Joe Pug, who I first saw was it open? He either opened for. He opened for John Prine because John Prine and Joe Pug's management was the same at the time. Uh, Joe Pug's written some amazing lyrics. Uh, He's the guy who wrote in the song Bright Beginnings, I don't know, but I could swear we left our better selves somewhere these days. All we do, it seems, is chase our checks and call them dreams. Uh, There are a lot of great singer-songwriters out there. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of great uh, Chicago singer songwriters. There's, uh, Riley Walker who grew up in, uh, I think he grew up in, uh, or Rockford. Rockford. I yeah, think. no, he's, yeah. he's from Rockford, but has been based in Chicago and, uh, you know, it's very reminiscent of somebody, although, you know, he has so many different sides to the way he makes music. But sometimes he reminds me of Richard Thompson or uh, Nick Drake, John Martin, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, some of the early 70s British singer-songwriters. I think he's magnificent. There are people that uh, play around Chicago that are not huge recording artists. Uh, Elk, Steve Elkington. You've got to get his last record. It's absolutely amazing. But it's, you know, it's uh, an acoustic finger picking style uh, album. You're you're not you're not gonna hear it on
0: pop radio. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this.
1: How are the Cubs gonna do this year? Cubs are definitely gonna make it to the playoffs. Everybody's gotta stop panicking every week, depending on oh, the pitching staff is horrible and then they, they go five games where they're they're unhittable. You have to understand, over 162 games. Uh, you know, I'm saying this as much for myself as for everybody else because I forget this all the time. Is that everything sort of returns to the mean? That's why they have batting averages. That if Anthony Rizzo is batting 160 in April, he's going to bat 400 in June, and it's all going to even out. So relax, everybody. I'm I never, you know, say the Cubs are going to go to the World Series. Or win the World Series, but I'll tell you this: they will have us on the edge of our seats, all the way through September into early October, and then beyond. Win or lose, we'll be focused because everybody's in.
0: That was a refreshing cup of Kool-Aid to wash the cynic <laughs> out inside of me. <laughs> I felt the exact opposite going through this uh, month. L-
1: let me tell you something, Marty. When you've invested as much money as I have as a <laughs> season ticket holder since 1989, you got to believe.
0: And we'll end it at that. Well said. Well, Lynn, thank you once again for joining us today on Inside the Archives. You hear him every morning alongside Mary Dixon on 93XRT and 93XRT.com. And until next time. It's great to be alive. There we go. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks again to Lynn Bramer for joining us today on Inside the Archives. Let's take a look at what's been happening in the music world since our last episode, and we got to start with the soap opera that is Fleetwood Mac. They continue to deliver riveting entertainment as recently the band spoke with Rolling Stone about the exit of Lindsey Buckingham and what their future holds. Stevie Nicks had a great quote and she got right to the point about why they split with Buckingham. She revealed that a scheduling conflict was responsible for Buckingham's exit, saying, We're supposed to go into rehearsal in June, and he wanted to put it off until November 2019. That's a long time. I just did 70 shows on a solo tour. As soon as I finish one thing, I dive back into another. Why would we stop? We don't want to stop playing music. We don't have anything else to do. This is what we do. Additionally, Mick Fleetwood bluntly added, Not to hedge around, but we arrived at the impasse of hitting a brick wall. This was not a happy situation for us in terms of the logistics of a functioning ban. To that purpose, we made a decision that we could not go on with him. Majority rules in terms of what we need to do as a band and go forward. Cynicism aside, Fleetwood Mac did deliver some exciting news revealing that they're going to be playing music from the band's entire catalog. It's not just going to be fragmented into certain portions of the band's career. So fans attending their show here in Chicago at the United Center can expect to hear a wide array of Fleetwood Mac songs. And now we turn our attention to a man who has gone viral over the past weeks, thanks to a little bit of face paint and the Foo Fighters. And that man is Kiss Guy. If you haven't seen the video yet, go onto YouTube and search Kiss Guy Foo Fighters and you'll find a fantastic video where a gentleman who paints his face like a member of Kiss gets brought up on stage and absolutely kills their song Monkey Wrench. He (laughs) had clearly practiced it for a while and Dave Grohl lets him shine in the spotlight for about seven minutes total in the video giving him a guitar solo and he runs around the stage headbanging, hitting all corners of the stage like a true rock star. Well... Kiss Guy recently had an interview with another blog where he shared the story behind getting up on stage with the Foo Fighters. Before getting to the show, Kiss Guy got a front row spot and had a yellow sign that said, let me play Monkey Wrench on it, where he was holding up during the start of the show before someone yelled at him saying, put that effing sign down, man. However, it did catch the attention of Dave Grohl and Chris Shiflet, where Kiss Guy said, Dave and Chris started talking to me from the stage. Dave looked at me with his face all scrunched up, as if trying to focus in, and said, Dude, is that paint or a mask? I replied, Paint. Then Grohl said something like, Hell yeah, dude, I can F with you, kiss guy. (laughs) Somewhere in all that, Chris mentioned how he preferred Ace Frehley. The entire time the two of them were talking to me, the voice in my head was like, Show him the sign, show him the sign, and bam, at the very last second I said, F it, and flashed my sign up. The rest is history. Kiss Guy got brought up to the stage, nailed Monkey Wrench, and became an internet sensation. So, if you want to get on stage during the Foo Fighters upcoming shows at Wrigley Field, you have a pretty high bar to match that has been set by Kiss Guy. In other news, Death Cab for Cutie announced their return both in person and in our music catalogs with the revelation that they're going to be releasing a new album this August, and they're going to be stopping by to play an XRT show this October at the Auditorium Theater. We're really excited to hear their return. It's been since 2015 with their album Kintsugi. That was the last material we got from Death Cab for Cutie. So they posted a 30-second teaser video with really, really cool graphics alongside uh, what is presumably a new song, that is coming this August. I do not have the date in front of me, but if that is revealed, make sure you're following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at 93XRT, where you can get the latest news on Death Cab for Cutie and so much more. Well, that's all the time we have for today on Inside the Archives podcast. Once again, thanks to Lynn Bramer for joining us and having that great conversation about music and songwriting. If you are enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review, rate us, and share it with your friends. For 93XRT and Inside the Archives, I'm Marty Rosenbaum. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. clock at four. Doncic.